Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet Podcast. Today's guest is Ned Van Zant, the Program Director for Transcend New York, a men's recovery and transitional living home in New York City. He might be recognizable to you. His voice may be audibly recognizable to you. He is an actor, a writer, and a man with a long-term recovery story of his own and why he does this work. So welcome, Ned. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Diana. It's great to be here. So let's start at the very beginning. What drives you to do this work? Well, um, I'm from Texas. Um, I came from a line of uh, pioneer family. My great-great-grandfather was Secretary of State to the Republic of Texas before it became a state. Uh, his father, I mean his son, my great-grandfather, was one of the founders of the city of Fort Worth. I had a very exotic childhood. I grew up, um, my dad worked for an oil company, and so I grew up in Venezuela, Somalia, London, Rome, and um, and then when, we, when I was 11, we moved back to Texas and I had seen the world and I did not want to be in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and so this coincided, this was the late 60s, early 70s. I went to a series of boarding schools. I ended up at one in Lenox, Massachusetts, which was pretty great school. And there I developed a passion for acting. My mother had been a big band singer in the 1930s. And so I think I got my showbiz appetite from her. But uh, anyway, I was, I mean, I guess I call myself a child of the 60s and 70s. And so I was right there when sex, drugs, and rock and roll hit. And uh, I jumped on that train. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a story, but I'm here to tell it and I'm alive and happy and healthy. Um, but what drives me to do what I do? So I got sober for the first time um, in uh, the late 80s. And uh, I put together about 12 years of sobriety. And I did the regular thing. I went to a couple of treatment centers. I did 12-step programs. I kind of rebuilt my life from what I thought was a um, colorful bottom. Um, but I found I wasn't giving back. It's interesting because uh, a couple of weeks ago, a casting director named Jay Bender, uh, who was a New York theater casting director, he died suddenly. He was in his early 70s. And uh, in the 90s, when I was sober, I worked for him. And uh, in addition to being an actor, and so that's kind of what I did between acting jobs is I worked as a casting assistant uh, 
and we cast 22 Broadway shows, um, including The Lion King, a lot of the Disney stuff, Neil Simon plays. But what I found was that I really liked giving back. I liked helping actors. Um, you know, acting is, for lack of a better word, it's a very uh, selfish profession. Um, I think it was Robert De Niro when somebody asked him about acting and he said, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, um, you know, I, for whatever the psychological reasons are for, for all of that. And, you know, um, you know, I think there's some narcissism there. And I found when I was working in the casting field, uh, I really loved giving back. Now, that's the stuff you're supposed to do in the recovery world, too. But for some reason, I didn't get that memo. And uh, I wasn't doing service as it was. And uh, so at one point in my acting career in the late 90s, <clears throat> I was getting some good jobs. And I decided, you know, it was time for look at me, look at me. Uh, and so I quit working in casting. And uh, it wasn't long after that, that I happened to be at the gym one morning. And I wasn't quite awake. And I was actually doing a, a play on Broadway at the time. And the story was I was bench pressing and the bar slipped and hit my chest. I thought I'd cracked a rib. I went to the emergency room and I was given some narcotics. Now, as a recovering narcotic addict, I knew that I wasn't supposed to do that, but uh, I didn't have a very solid foundation in my recovery program at the time. And I thought, ah, it'll be okay, I'm fine. You know, I'm 12 years sober. And uh, I took that one Vicodin or Percocet or whatever it was, and suddenly all my insecurities were gone. And I, you know, it was like I forgot everything where I'd been. And I went, this isn't so bad. I can handle this. Well, that didn't work out. And so for the next seven years, I was out, as they say. And uh, I hit another colorful bottom. Um, I ended up back in Texas. I owned a house in, in Austin. And I went there and I just, it just got worse and worse. And, uh, and uh, finally culminating with me getting arrested for possession of drugs and one of the worst counties of Texas that you can have that happen to you. And uh, I ended up in, a, in jail. And this time there was nobody to bail me out. My mom was long gone. My dad was gone. I had a brother and sister and they weren't, they weren't going to put up with it anymore. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So that experience, which was in 2006, was the worst experience in my life and the best experience in my life because I, you know, anyway, it's a great story. I've written about it. Uh, and so I got sober again and, uh, you know, I celebrated 15 years in, in January. And what I discovered and what I remembered is that, you know, this time I did all the, I followed directions like I was supposed to. I mean, I went to a treatment center. I went to and I ended up living in a, uh, a sober house, a transitional living facility in Honolulu. Um, you know, I, I recommend everybody get sober in Hawaii. It's the best place to do that. But uh, 
I ended up living in a sober house for over a year and I became the manager of that sober house. And, and, uh, so that kind of, that was the, the Genesis that's, that's where it started. And I thought I should work in this field. Um, but I was ambitious. I moved back to Los Angeles. I moved back to New York 10 years ago and I've had some success as an actor, but there are those downtimes. And about five years ago, I met a friend socially and, uh, he worked in this field and he said, you should come work. And so I, that's, that's what happened. And I, you know, I'm passionate about it. I love it. You know, I still do the acting when I can, um, less theater now because, um, time constraints, but occasionally I will, you know, do a guest star part on television or a film. And, uh, you know, it's about giving back, but it really came full circle when my friend passed away a couple of weeks ago and I went, aha, that was it. I was giving back. I wasn't, you know, me, me, me. And, uh, hmm. So that's, that's kind of what drives me because, you know, as they say, you can only keep it if you give it away. And, uh, mm -hmm. that's been my experience. So that's, that's a great intro to, I have a friend with long-term recovery and he always says, the thing you don't get about me, Diana, is I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. And yeah. that, you know, we laughed, and I guess that's a pretty common line in some of the recovery circles. But I would imagine, Ned, that theater, acting, the focus of the limelight on somebody is going to increase that potential for self-aggrandizement in that moment. I would imagine. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. You know, and it's, you know, having... Yeah, I mean, you know, there's stories of actors and substance abuse and, you know, it's you got to you got to find what your core is, what what your your mm -hmm. spiritual connection is. Some something that keeps you going, whether it's family, animals, you know, God, Buddhism. Right. You got to have something. And uh other than you know, the job, the fame, the the work the job, the fame, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about giving back. Giving back can be that something, right? Isn't that what you wound up finding that helping other people actually helps you recovery, recover? It is that counterintuitive, let me focus on somebody else and I'll be better. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's tricky because I was having an argument or just a you know conversation with a friend who was, you know, just about this subject. It's like he was saying that that's there's something fake about getting what you want by giving it away, as if that's a, a, a technique. And um, I said, I don't know, but it works. Uh, you know, I, it's how one thinks about it. But I, I'll tell you, when the pandemic hit, here's, here's a good example in my life is, um, so the pandemic hit. And at the time, I was working for the company I work for now. Uh, and, uh, and I was also, you know, doing some TV film work. And TV film work went away. And I was so grateful uh, to have, you know, 
the work I was doing, you know, if I'd been holed up in my apartment, um, and it wasn't just financially, I was grateful. I was just grateful to be able to, to help, to give. And, uh, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the neurochemicals of giving, right? Oxytocin, when we give, when we give without expectation of receiving, our oxytocin elevates, dopamine elevates, all of those good neurochemicals elevate. And so just to think about the possibility that your program is built on elevating those chemicals in a give back way is nice yeah. to hear. For me, I was fortunate in that when I got sober again, I knew I had something in me to give in terms of just, you know, my acting career and stuff. I knew there was something there that I could find to feel good about. And so it's helping, you know, the people I am in charge of find that thing, that, uh, that kernel of self-love and that they can build on. I love that. I love that because we do know that connection is what heals in all kinds of arenas in the mental health arena. Um, and what you are doing in that process is really connecting very deeply with people to try and help them find that love and yeah of their own i would imagine right yes and it's and it's tough you know it's um it is tough the nature of the recovery world i think has changed like when i got well when i got sober the first time um mm -hmm. in my 30s tough love was uh big mm -hmm. and uh and I think it, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm a big proponent of it, but they're, you know, it's, it's nuanced. And, um, I think so, we've gotten better about that, Ned, in being really? nuanced about what love yeah. looks like. Yeah, we exactly. can call it whatever we want. Tough love, love, love. It's right. a little more like, yeah. you know, less sweet, a little tougher. Yeah. But there is a middle ground now that we didn't used to have. It seemed exactly. all or nothing 40 years ago. And now families have yeah. a range of options, as do people who help them. Truly, yes. If you were Ned of 40 years ago, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, don't move into the Chelsea Hotel. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was, uh, gosh, how old was I? 24, uh, much younger. Um, I had a girlfriend. Uh, I was an actor in Los Angeles and I had a girlfriend who was a supermodel. Actually, this is right when that term was Andy Warhol had discovered her. She was beautiful. She was from Bulgaria. Um, she was wonderful, and uh, but I just kind of was swept up in that whole. Um, I mean, it was it was it was quite a time, but uh, Studio Fifty Four, all that world. Um, anyway, I ended up living at the Chelsea Hotel with Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. I moved in the same week they did. 
uh, Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. It's funny when I tell this story to some of the kids I work with, they have no idea. And uh, I mean, some of them do. Some of them like were wearing Sid Vicious T-shirts, um, which is not such a good thing. Um, right. But uh, anyway, I'm I I just went into that world. I was like a preppy actor with a tweed jacket and wire rim glasses with this exotic Bulgarian girlfriend. And uh, through a series of circumstances, we had a big fight. And I ended up moving into the Chelsea Hotel and lived there for a couple of years. And boy, I just, you know, I jumped into that world. And uh, um, yeah, it's just a, that's one of my colorful stories. Yeah, the Chelsea Hotel. I remember the art on the walls depicting so much of that era. You know, even oh, decades no. later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's. But I could yeah, see no. where it would be a a stair step downward as opposed to to enlightenment that we were all seeking in that era. Yeah. Oh, yes, very much so. Right. I appreciate you being here today. It was wonderful to meet you. It's wonderful to hear about your work and your dedication to giving back now, which, as we all know, you get to keep what you give. So thank you right. very much. You bet. Thank you, Diana. This has been an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you have listened or watched us on a platform, please like us so that other people know about this episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.